one of the pastors here at Soma. And we have been tracking through the book of Exodus. Just walking through this book and this text. And we've been in some of the most famous parts, not only of the book of Exodus, but really the entire scriptures. And today is no different. In fact, today, I think I've said the last several weeks, but every week it feels true, could be the most famous part, again, not just of Exodus, but the whole Bible. It's the crossing of the Red Sea. And this moment in Scripture has been turned into platitudes, turned into movies, turned into references all throughout culture. And my fear in that is that just like anything you become over-familiar with, sometimes you can miss or start to miss what it actually is, miss what the story actually is trying to communicate to us. I mean, we think of the Red Sea, and there's probably a distinct image that you get, whether it's animated because it's informed by movies in the 90s, or if it's more just like by flannel board and church growing up, if you grew up in church. But ultimately you start to miss all of what God is showing us in the Red Sea narrative. That's not just true about the Israelites thousands of years ago, but it's true about every person who would follow after Jesus and daily lay down their life, pick up their cross and follow after him, become a disciple of him. It's a process that I mean, even the imagery used by Jesus to describe it is of death, is of self-denial, is of laying down and stripping something away painfully. But yet it leads to life. It leads to what we were designed to be. It leads to that which we would want if we could dare to hope for what our lives, what our humanity would look like. But either it's that we're too afraid to hope or it's just we... More likely, it's that we fear the journey it takes to get there. The good news is that God is very underwhelmed about our fear of that journey and uh, takes us along. Um, I want to lay out for you in this narrative that exact idea that, that God, Yahweh, as he refers himself in the scriptures, this personal name, the covenant God of Israel, and the covenant God of all who would call in the name of Jesus desires a much fuller, much truer form of freedom than you're, you and I are very comfortable with. And that, again, this Red Sea narrative is his way of showing what he will do for Israel and what he'll do for us. Because they stepped out of slavery already, if you've been tracking along in the book. They just got released from Egypt, from the Pharaoh who was their wicked taskmaster who pressed them and put them to genocide, threw their babies into the Nile River and demanded more bricks or just the same quote of bricks without giving them all the materials to do so and then beat them ruthlessly when they couldn't do what was impossible of a task. And so they step out of that moment. And not only that, through the 10 plagues and the 11 signs, like God gets Egyptians to push them out And then give them, like it says that Israel plundered the Egyptians. That's kind of a strong word for it because it was more like the sense of like they were giving them their gold, giving them their resources, giving them their cattle, giving them their food. They walked out of Egypt, not just free, but loaded. And there's a part of them that's just like, well, this is awesome. This is exactly what we wanted for, all that we wanted and more. 
But then they step out and go on a road where God immediately, as it says in the text, takes them the opposite direction of that which they thought they were going and then pushes them up against a sea so that they have nothing to do but beg for their lives to be rescued from something with an answer that nobody saw coming. I mean, it's got to be a moment where the Israelites are like, I, this is not what I thought was happening when we walked out of Egypt. And a lot of you, again, for you, if you are here and you are a Christian, if you are someone who has met Jesus, Again, not just someone who has come to religious services and learned to perform religious rituals, but someone who has understood the difference between religion and the gospel. Of not, I just come and I, I try to become acceptable before God, but rather God accepts me through Jesus' acceptability, through his righteousness, through his death and sacrifice. Now, he dies the death that I deserve to die, and he lived the life that I should have lived. And so when I come into that, and that, that, penetrates my heart and I actually decide, hey, I want to give up my sin and I want, to, I want to let Jesus be my representative for my death and my representative for my life and righteousness. And you realize that, I mean, again, I say several times, I, I grew up in church but never heard the words of a pastor that eventually caught me in college while I was studying abroad in Spain when all of a sudden I heard for the first time, hey, it's not just that God wants to hang out with a future version of myself that finally got all my crap together. It's that he, through Jesus, sees me as perfect in him right now as I continue to screw up day after day and and wonder how God could truly desire to call me a son. And so when that actually dropped in me, and I realized, man, that's the gospel that we're peddling. It's not just like try hard and God might like you if you actually work hard enough at it, but rather he loves you in Christ now as you are and sees you as perfect, blameless, and spotless. Like that just exploded in my heart as worship and effortless desire to read the scriptures and learn more about him and, and sing songs. I mean, it explodes in worship when that happens. But then for any and all of us who have been Christians for more than all of a year, eventually that initial explosion of worship fades and it starts to cool. You start to ask yourself, like, well, what does this mean? Am I not really Christian? Do I not actually love God? Do I not actually desire to worship him? I mean, what happened? All this zeal. And you start experiencing where many of us have been consoled either by the words or at least the concepts that C.S. Lewis talked about when he said, hey, coming to know Jesus can often be like coming to a new relationship, a new marriage, where the honeymoon phase sets in and it's, excitement, it's passion, it's zeal, it's can't eat, can't sleep, it's infatuation. But just like all relationships, it matures past that. Because if you truly could never eat, could never sleep, as long as you were with only dreaming to be with that person, you'd lose your job, you'd be very hungry, you'd die, you'd be cranky at least. And he's like, it would be unhealthy after a while. You would desire for that kind of infatuation to be taken from you because it's not healthy to actually live that way. He said, no, what, what happens both in that marriage and in the relationship between God and, and his children is one that, yes, has passionate explosion of zeal when the gospel is understood. But that gives way to what one pastor and author calls a long obedience in the same direction which I used to think was like the most 
horrific sounding thing of all Christianity. Like, don't give me like a long obedience in the same direction. Give me like a renewed like spirit of zeal and your mercies are new every morning. Yes, Lord, I, I receive that in Jesus' name. But the problem was is that it just couldn't work that way because and again, another author, Pete Cesaro, I really like how he says it, that God won't let you keep your emotions because you'll slowly begin to worship the way that God makes you feel rather than the God himself behind that feeling. And so eventually, he does what has happened again to anyone who's been married for more than a year. You push through that honeymoon phase. But on the other side of it, you actually find something more profound, more beautiful. It's a relationship that, yes, has highs and lows and mundaneness and just sometimes sitting in silence and fighting together, and reconciling together, and pursuing oneness. Not done out of a drive, out of pure zeal and emotion, but done out of choice, and laying down one's life, sacrificing your desires for another, even when you don't feel like it. I mean, all of the marriages, all of the relationships, all of that which really actually we recognize as powerful, that which would bring us to tears, are not based primarily off of a zeal that was never quenched. It's based off of a choice, off of coming together again and again and again, regardless of whether you feel like it. That's the kind of freedom that Yahweh wants for his people, and ultimately that's what he wants for us as his people. It's a truer, fuller freedom. And he does it through growing our faith which is exactly what he does here in the Red Sea narrative. I'll be reading parts of it and then popping up just to kind of bring this out for you to, to make it plain again so that we don't let something over familiar fail to teach us what is screaming pretty loud, I believe. If you would um, turn your Bibles to Exodus 13, verse 17. We'll be reading parts of that and parts of verse uh, chapter 14 as well. It's on page 55 in my black hardback Bible. That could also be true in your black hardback Bible, but I don't know. Let me start by reading 1317. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness, toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkot and encamped at Etham, and on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So immediately you see in this, God is going to grow faith in Israel and also in you and I by asking us to just simply trust where he's going. They depart from Egypt. And it was a fairly simple journey. In fact, 
just, I mean, maps are sometimes the most boring parts of sermons. I mean, when people bring up a map in a sermon, I'm like, oh gosh, here we go. I'm going to do something. I'm going to break my habit. Actually, I have a slide of a map because this is helpful to see. You see at the beginning, and this is not the most clear resolution. Sorry, we didn't get the retina display. Uh, But if you see where that brown and red line both begin on the left side of the map, that was where the Israelites were departing from. That was Egypt. And if you trace along the brown line, which is a road, by the way, um, it takes you directly to the promised land. And if you follow the red line, this is more of the route that actually, we can, as far as we can tell by markers and, and things that is mentioned, they actually took. And so I'm no expert navigator. But I would say, hey, quick idea on the plan. We go along the coastline on the road and we stay in the green and avoid the brown and yellow regions. Brown and yellow, typically unpleasant for travel. Green, very good. And so that would be simple. It would be direct. It'd be probably a fairly short trip. But God says, no, hey, I'm intentionally going to take you south to go north. And he's not really actually, like, mysterious as to why. He says very plainly, hey, if we go along the direct route, the way of the Philistines, they're going to see a really warrior, uh, warriorish, warish people, and they're going to turn back and go back to Egypt. They're going to be afraid. What's interesting is that in chapter 17, they will fight. In fact, they will be a people that will fight the Philistines for pretty much their entire history. Like, God's saying, like, hey, I'm going to lead you. In fact, I'm going to lead you through battles like this. But here's the thing. You're not ready right now. You'd be like all of the movies, which are like the hero's tales, like when it's like a hero who has something to like rise up and face. But of course, that's not till the very end of the movie. What's the entire movie? The entire movie is them becoming ready. And so that's, I mean, you can pick anyone. Let's just pick an arbitrary one. Antonio Banderas, Mask of Zorro, 1998. He starts out the movie with the passion and the desire to fight. But what does his little mentee say? Or mentor. Tells him, hey, if you fight, you'll fight bravely. And you'll die swiftly. Because you're not ready. Here's a, a really helpful thing to learn from this text for us at this church, primarily because many of us are closer to the first half of our life than the second. At least of what we know. Sometimes, this isn't always the reason, but sometimes that thing that you are asking God to give you, thing that you're asking life to give you, that career, that success, that resources, the house, the marriage, the family, the leadership position you swear you're ready for, there could be lots of reasons of why God's not giving them to you or it to you. But here's one of them you're not ready. In all of God's infinite wisdom, he sees that if you were to receive that which you think you deserve or need or have to have, 
in this moment, maybe he will give it to you. Maybe it's like, hey, family, that's a good thing. Absolutely. It's something to be desired after after the Lord. It's something that he designed us to be fruitful and multiply. Why would he not want me to have this? Why would he not want me to have a good spouse? Why would he not have me have an ability to provide for myself or have a platform to preach the gospel of how God's been faithful to me in this leadership position? Absolutely. Those are all great things. Maybe he'll give them to you eventually. Maybe he won't, but maybe he's not giving them to you now because you're just simply not ready. Remember the words of a pastor and an author and, I mean, just a, a man whose uh, teaching has really been impactful and shaping in my life, particularly as I got started in ministry and just realized that his path was a lot more typical than the upward and onward all the time kind of guy. But he talked about how he was once speaking at a conference and he had just written a book and he was like, he'd had a couple of those sessions where it's just like you felt the spirit moving People were getting saved and crying and repenting and being baptized in the bathroom or whatever. I don't know. It was just like pandemonium. He was killing it, slaying at this whole preaching and being an author thing. And on the way home, he sees a voicemail on his phone and it's his wife simply telling him that she'll be gone when he gets there and all of her stuff too because their marriage is over. And he said that phone call ushered in a decade of him now in many situations being seen as disqualified for the ministry he thought he was called to and not having speaking opportunities or writing books but learning how to be a single dad of three daughters and their dog who as he described one moment in particular as he was taking clothes that had Needed, were needed for the next day of school by the older ones and would have been spit up and pooped on by the younger one. And as he's taking all this out of the laundry and moving it to the dryer, their dog comes and vomits on the floor. He describes himself as wearing a bathrobe, the one which he'd been wearing that entire week and being unshaven. And having this moment of saying, this is what my life is now. This is a picture of my life. And in in that same teaching, he's teaching from the book of Ecclesiastes. And he taught on the concept of saying, hey, for all of you that are feeling held back in this moment, that you feel like there's something that God or somebody's holding you out on that, hey, you're just not ready for that leadership position right now. Hey, we're not going to put you forward right now. Hey, you're gifted, but you need more development. Or hey, you just need a little bit more humility. Or maybe you have the gifting, you have the humility, but you just don't have the opportunity right now. Wait for the timing of God to give you an opportunity. He said, praise God for that. So he said that decade worked and shaped him in a way that he has now been able to minister to pastors all around the world of men who sometimes feel like they have all the pressures of the kingdom of God on their back and yet feel constantly like they're failing and him coming and saying like, hey, let me show you how failure has shaped me to actually be one who can more effectively minister God's word than less. He said something that I just hold with me regularly. He said like, there's all this pressure on pastors. And this is just not true of pastors. This is true of everyone. There's all this pressure to do something really big, really fast and really famous. Or said God's faithfulness is often found in doing something really small, really slow, repeatedly in moments that are often overlooked. 
He said, pastors, don't just think of your ministry as the time where you're preaching and people are all of a sudden like repenting and tearing their clothes and becoming saved in the streets. Think of it as the person who's standing just off to the side who's no one talking, no one's talking to and as you go and approach them and you find out about their life and you realize that this is going to be a long journey with this person and they're no one of particular merit. They're the poor person that James says, hey, you don't favor the rich man. You go and you talk with them. And you sit with them and you minister and you counsel and you shepherd because God's doing something that you can't see now, but the kingdom will be revealed. It's something possibly much more glorious than that speaking event. Because the kingdom of God is not built in the fast and the famous and the big and the special and the shiny. It's often built in the slow, often overlooked, mundane moments of everyday faithfulness. That's the kind of stuff that doesn't burn up. And so, as he ministered to my soul and as he's continued to minister to others, and even, again, you see this not just in modern times, you see this in Exodus. I mean, I preached from a couple of weeks ago. You see that Moses is very clear, lives 120 years. And when he starts talking with Pharaoh, this all starts happening at year 80 for him. And so much... That, I mean, you can take that and look at the book of Exodus as just three 40-year segments of Moses' life. And D.L. Moody was quoted in saying that God takes 40 years of Moses thinking he's somebody and then sends him to the desert for 40 years to shepherd sheep and learn that he's nobody so that in the last 40 years, God can take somebody and do something that nobody had ever done before. And maybe God is going to have you for a long time go south. And it's just confusing. But as the, the New York City prophet Tim Keller has espoused before, sometimes you would learn that you would answer your prayers the exact same way God answers your prayers if you could see everything he sees. You only get that by hindsight. But praise God for that, though, which is holding us back right now. And so we learn that ultimately it's God saying, hey, you need to trust where I'm going. In fact, he's going to continue to say, hey, just follow after me. And you see that uh, in 13 verses 21 through 20. I already read it, but I'll reread it just for this point. It says, and the Lord went before them by a day and a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way by night and a pillar of fire to give them light they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. I read this and I'm like, yes and amen, Lord. I received the whole directing me by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night ministry of your Holy Spirit. And I will now prayerfully name it and claim it until I see the pillar form in my front yard. And we just like, this is what we want. This is what we desire for God to do. Where do I go to college? Where do I get my first career? Where do I go? Do I move to this job or move to this city? Do I marry this person? When do we have kids? When do we stop having kids? When do uh, we get rid of the kids? And when do, you know, how do we get to what college do we send them to? And, you know, just like all this point of just like, God, yes and amen. Just please like, you know, I, it would really be helpful. I mean, it doesn't have to be a full pillar. I could just be walking, and there's like a slight cloud over someone's head, and that's the one. That's it. That's the person. And I just say, hey, by the way, um, we're going to get married. And you can slap me now, but you got the pillar. So, you know, it's cool. 
And we desire the magic eight ball version of the Bible where you're just like, you know, like, God, where should I move to Austin? And, you know, you open and you point and it's, and then Judas hung himself. And you're like, two out of three. And, you know, <laughs> and ultimately what we're doing in this moment is we're taking our will and asking God, hey, just give me the left or right as I go towards my plan. The point of a pillar leading them and never departing from them is not, hey, this is how God does it. If you pray hard enough, he'll show you exactly where to go. It's that they were going in the opposite direction that any human being would ever choose. And they were led there not by human strategy. Let's avoid the Philistines. It'll go better for us. They were led there by God himself. Pillars don't show up when it's like, hey, which awesome opportunity do I take? Pillar-like moments show up when it says, hey, I'm going to take you the opposite direction you want to go. I mean, if you think about it this way, like walk out like tomorrow and there's like a pillar in your front yard. You're like, no, no, I, I do not follow this. I rebuke this pillar. And like, that's the moment that the pillar shows up, okay? If you want the pillar, it like means like you're going for something that you would never choose yourself. And you're going towards a freedom that you would not want while you're going through it, but yet it's a far, far fuller, far truer version of freedom than you've ever thought possible. Interesting point I just have to say, too, before I move on. We preached about this in our prayer series of, uh, earlier this spring, First Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, where essentially... I mean, it's really short, but it says like, hey, you know, uh, give thanks for everything, you know, abound in uh, thanksgiving, um, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God for you. More or less, it's a paraphrase, but that's essentially what it's saying. Which is interesting, because there's, there's two times in Scripture where it talks about God's will. And they're both like really underwhelming things like that. Hey, pray all the time and just really be thankful for everything, abounding in every situation with thanksgiving. And the other one is like, hey, don't go get drunk on wine, but just like be filled with the Spirit. In both of those situations, say, hey, this is the will of God for you. It's interesting, if we actually do a quick Bible study of what the will of God for you is about, it's not about these major forks in the road. This person or that person, this college or that college, this job or that job. I mean, if you really think about it, that all accounts for probably 0.01% of your life and the decisions you make every single day. There's like six of them you've had, maybe total. He says, hey, the will of, your, will of God for you is that you take the everyday decisions. The day in, day out, I wake up and I'm going to push myself into a humble submission place of prayer for the day. I get up and I get going and I'm going to take a moment to just remember God's faithfulness and his presence as my work gets going. I'm going to come home. I'm going to put my phone in the drawer and I'm going to look my wife, my kids, my roommate, my friend, whoever in the eyes and be present to them. I'm going to go to bed at this time because I know I'm going to wake up at that time and I'm not going to wake up at that time to pray if I don't go to bed at this time. It's the 99.99% of all the unsexy decisions that actually make up God's will for us. And we're just like, please, God, give me the point zero one. Where, let me just tell you a little story from the other side of 30. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, I've got a lot, lot to grow in humility and, and understanding in life. 
But what I have learned, I give to you right now, is that life is a whole lot of building the plane while you're flying it. It's not the sense of like, oh, I just knew with everything that God wanted me to go this way. It's just like, I, now I got kids and I got to figure out how to take care of them and I got to figure out how to bring up souls in the way that would, would follow after Jesus with everything that I can. All the while feeling like the best of parents, the best of parents. It's like an 80-20. 80% I got this, 20% I am failing with every fiber of my being. Most of us, it's the flip, the 20-80. And, uh, and yeah, I'm going to build this as I fly. I, I, I'm going to figure out life. Yeah, I graduated. Yeah, I have this career that I'm supposed to step into and just be offered to me. But you know what? You're uh, graduate out in the recessions here. Sorry. And, you know, just go substitute teach for a few years and do a bunch of random odd jobs and put together about seven W-2s that all together make up about $22,000. And, you know, share, share every apple because you got to eat. And you figure out you're just building this plane while you fly it. I mean, that's why, I mean, pretty much every single one of you to the T, if you Every 10 years, you say, like, when you were 10 years ago, thinking about this moment, you say, I never thought I would be here. And maybe it was something, I had these big dreams and God didn't realize them, or I had these humble dreams and God did something I never saw, but either way, he's taking you to something that he actually is designing you for, gifted you for, and is actually going to bring life, not just about you, but to the entire world and the kingdom of God. Because ultimately, it's not about you. And your most your deepest joy is going to come when you learn and, and live into the fact that my life is about serving and giving of myself to reflect the glory of God and the joy of others, not myself. Because we learn to slowly but surely trust where God is going, no matter where it is, even if it's south. And everything in us says, hey, we, we should be going north. Also in the Red Sea narrative, God teaches the Israelites and therefore us that we teaches us to trust an unfamiliar freedom versus a familiar slavery. See this in chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of that place. I don't know how to say it, but that's okay. Between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. It's interesting, again, uh, you, we don't have to bring that map up again, but if you actually see the point in which they cross the Red Sea, of which we believe, it is a point that like, is kind of a dip into the sea, and so there's be water on all sides. I mean, it was literally the wilderness would have shut them in only one way out, and that was the way the Pharaoh, of course, was coming. Uh, and I will, verse 17, I will uh, harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they shall go after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. Oh, wait, hold on, did I skip down? Where was I? I was. Uh, yeah, sorry, I was in verse 3, and I went to 17. No, all right, getting ahead of myself. Uh, let's go back to 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Same concept. Come on, the Bible repeats itself. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh, and all the hosts of the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And then the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have lit, uh, have lit Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. 
The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen, and his army, and overtook them, and camped at the sea by that place, in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel uh, cried out to God. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us to bring us out of Egypt? Is it not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. All of counseling and psychology will tell you the real way that anyone changes is not because you just will, will it. It's always because the pain of staying the same begins to grow larger than the pain of change. Because change is just intrinsically painful. I mean, when you step out of a life of living for yourself, of sin in any capacity, of addiction, you have this gap between when you've stepped out but yet are not to the point of life and fullness and freedom and maturity, but yet you have stepped out of the comforts of that sin or that addiction and, and that which was killing you, but at least you could control when you got the buzz. And so there's this little gap in between that all of a sudden like a huge majority of people just decide never mind the freedom, I'll willfully go back to the familiar slavery. And so it's just the point of like, why don't we just go back to Egypt? Why don't we just go back to being slaves and probably killed there slowly? Because out here, we just, we just don't know what's going to happen. It's, just, it's, it's an unfamiliar freedom. And I'd rather just take a familiar slavery if I'm, if I'm being honest. Because they do face like real problems. I mean, all of a sudden you have, it says, I love how it says 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots. Like all the chariots went, but just to let you know, the 600 chosen ones, they were there too. And the chariot was like the pinnacle of innovation of all of that time. I mean, it was like the Tesla that also was a tank. It was just like everyone won battles based on if you just had more chariots because you could do so much more damage and move so much more quickly. And so you're, they're closing down on this people in chariots. And it says that officers are over every chariot. It's not just like we went and got like the low level guys and just throw bodies at them. It's like we went and got the most trained strategists of war and sent them after this people that has been pinned up against an, a sea on three sides with us coming down straight at them. I mean, this is a moment where you're, it's not like, well, maybe we can sneak around or like sneak up on them behind. It's like they're, we're just waiting by an ocean to die. We can go drown ourselves or we can run at them and die quicker. Those are our options. And in that, they cry out, and it's actually meant to remind you of chapter 3 when it says that, hey, Israel cried out and God heard their cry and he was going to be faithful to the covenant they kept to their forefathers. Except this time it says they cry out, and God like, actually ends up later like rebuking Moses. He's like, why are you crying out? And it's, he's confused by it because he's like, 
I just brought you out of Egypt. And it wasn't just like, come on, guys, let's go. And Pharaoh was like, you know what? You guys go be your best selves now. It was like, you know, we had 10 plagues of frogs and rivers to blood and darkness and killing all their livestock and hail and boils. And you were protected the whole time. But they, I mean, I turned dirt into gnats and covered them and they wished to die 10 times. And then the final plague was the death angel killing every firstborn. And I systematically took out every god that they'd ever sacrificed to and believed in, even Pharaoh himself, who was a god in the flesh. And as I did that, now I've brought you to this moment and you're wearing gold chains and eating snacks that were given to you, which are a sign of my faithfulness in this moment. And so, yeah, I'm a little confused on why all of a sudden I'm doubting your strategy on this one, God, because I'm ultimately doing something here. And I would love to mock them more, but they look exactly like you and me. Of like, you, you graduate school, And you're like, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to pay for my bills? And where is it ever going to come from a job? And I'm going to, you've led me out into the city to die. Were there not enough graves at my university that you just led me out here to die in the city in a house that I'm paying for while I die? Versus, you know, my parents paying for it. And, you know, and, and, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh, that worked out. Oh, I'm good. And who am I going to marry? And you're like, you know, it's just like all of a sudden, it's just like over and over and over again. Like every single time you're freaking out and God is like, hey, can you just like for a second realize that I've gotten you here with like a billion signs of my faithfulness? I mean, whenever we really try to think of God's faithfulness to us, my wife and I, we think about our kids. Because first, first son of ours, Judah, we go through the nine months of pregnancy and like two weeks before 40 weeks, which is full term, they say, hey, we want to bring you in and induce at 38 weeks. Because we didn't tell you this, but you have a rare blood condition that might kill the child. And so it's okay, we're at full term, we'll just deliver. But also to let you know, this problem won't go away. In fact, it'll pick up where it left off for all your future children. And in that moment, we were just like, I mean, both thankful that we were given a son but also it was like mourning the possibility of all these dreams that we talked about and what our family was going to look like when we, before we were married. And like, how many things we'll have? I don't know. What? How about four? Four? That's crazy. And, and <laughs> real words. And, uh, and so just like putting some of that to, to bed and to rest and, and ultimately just saying like, and just being prayed for by people of saying like, yeah, like, the only things that they said, hey, we can't tell you a lot about this condition except for you can't take it away. It'll pick up where it left off, and it, it's very unpredictable. The only thing that we typically see is it gets worse every time. And so every pregnancy you have, that's the most viable pregnancy you'll ever have again. And so we decide, okay, we're going to continue to just try to have kids and see what happens. And we, my wife gets pregnant with our second, and eventually we become our son. And we just like pray and pray and pray. And, they, and we go in every single week to get the readings to find out if the babies become anemic and will be stillborn. And so every week we're praying and the numbers, of course, stay the same, which is really good news. That's the best thing that can happen is the numbers stay the same. And so we pray and the numbers stay the same. We pray and the numbers stay the same. And then one week we go in and we just, you know, been praying for this, this baby that we would get to meet this baby. 
and they say, hey, weird thing. I, again, it's an unpredictable condition, but I don't have any precedent for this. The numbers actually went down. They said, it's never happened. And so that, that day, we'd been thinking about all these names. If it's a boy, it'll be this. If it's a girl, it's this. And I typed into Google, name baby, meaning protected by God. And it came up with the result, Esmond. And so I said, hey, if it's a boy, this baby should be named Esmond. Because he is our picture that we and he have been protected by God. And then week after week after week, we pray, and eventually Esmond comes into the world. And then my wife gets pregnant again, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and week after week, we get the results back. Hey, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, and we get Quinn. And then week after week after week, when a fourth baby comes, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and Greta's born. And every single time, it's this picture of God saying, I am protecting you. I'm taking care of you. But yet, let one hiccup happen with this church. And I'm anxious. I'm depressed. Where is God? What are you doing now? I mean, that was my whole fall. And God, it's like I hear the Spirit subtly saying, hey, what's your second kid's name? Has that changed? Has his name changed? Because my position hasn't. And I'm not trying to be overly trite, because I recognize that story could go completely different. We could have never had another child. We could have lost our first. I know friends that have struggled with infertility year after year and written blogs about the pain of that. And I know people that have, I, I mean, right now, I'm praying actively for one of my friends from school who just, they had their second baby as he battles stage four Hodgkin's, Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so they have a newborn and, this, and his wife, yeah, is taking care of now two children, and one of them being a newborn, and her husband that's vomiting around the clock. And I have no clue how that story's gonna go. I mean, some people, you're just gonna lose your spouse or lose your career, and it's not like, oh, like it led to like this better one. It was like it led to five years of unemployment and then taking a job that I never wanted to take. And God's story of faithfulness is not, hey, I'm going to protect that baby week after week after week. I mean, sometimes, praise God, it is. And, and sometimes it's, hey, we're going to go south, and we're going to go really deep south. But in that, I'm going to show you day after day, year after year, my grace, my presence, my spirit is leading you to a truer, more full freedom than you'd ever choose for yourself. But ultimately, it's found when you learn to trust fully in who I am and where I'm going. And you stop looking back to that familiar slavery and look back forward to a very unfamiliar freedom. Lastly, God teaches the Israelites and then us um, that faith is grown just like you work out a muscle by putting under stress, pain, suffering, and confusion to see it grow back stronger. 13. 
And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. And the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of, the God, the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them and between, or coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud of the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Ultimately, what's interesting is like when I think of like the, the Red Sea narrative, I just think of it as like, you know, like what you've seen in every movie. It's just like Moses is there and he's a little nervous, but he's told to take his staff and rise it. And so he rises it and all of a sudden it's like, like, you know, like immediate path right through the ocean. What's interesting here is that the words are actually, he lifts his staff and all night wind blows. And of course, it's the idea of like, okay, it blows right away and just keeps it open all night. But I think the connotation is more like, no, it, it starts blowing and starts pushing, and it takes all night for that road to emerge. Like all of a sudden, Moses just lifts his staff and just stands there, and a the wind picks up, and like, okay, something's happening. And it's just minute after minute, hour after hour, waiting, and slowly but surely, by the end of the evening, while they've been held in cloud cover, a pathway which no one could have seen coming emerges. Because often God makes you wait longer than you'd want to or are comfortable with. And he provides a way out that no one would have saw coming. It wasn't like they're just waiting, like, well, maybe God will just make a pathway through this sea. It's like they're sitting there and they're just praying that God does something. They're crying out to God. And I love Moses, like, says, like, you know, be still, like, you know, be silent. And you, like, think it's like, you know, Psalm 46, like, be still and know that I'm God. Not at all. But direct translation, Shut up. Shut up, and your God will fight for you in this moment. And you get this moment of exercising faith, which again is like how you work out a muscle. How do you work out a muscle? You put it under stress. You break it down. When you lift or when you work out or when you run, it's creating thousands of tears in your muscle fiber. So when it grows back, it's stronger. And all of faith, every moment, is a moment of, I don't think we're going to have any more kids. And God shows week after week, child after child, pregnancy after pregnancy, that he has the ability to take care of me. And so then the next time, when all of a sudden, I don't know what's going on, like I feel like I'm, I, I can't lead the church well in the fall, and I'm in depression and anxiety. God says, hey, I'm going to grow this back in you. 
so that it takes away that low-level anxiety you had all the time before that because now you learn, hey, I can take you through that. I've referenced it several times. The fall for me was like one of the darkest times of my life. I mean, just most intense anxiety, depression. I was seeing a counselor and just like nothing was getting better. Um, it was just, yeah, just this past year. And during that time, one of the things that my wife and I did, just a tangible thing, we said, okay, I don't know what to do. I mean, it was like, it was like feeling like my heart was racing all the time. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, my heart was racing at like four in the morning, couldn't go back to sleep, sat there sleepless with a racing heart, thinking like, God, I don't even know what's wrong. I don't even know why I feel this way, but yet I can't stop. I felt like I had a permanent like pain in my chest and my throat for like six months. And in that time, we just like start like saying, okay, all we know to do is just pray. So every day, 6 a.m., an alarm would go off, and my wife and I would wake up, and we'd walk through the Lord's Prayer. And it was just the different moments of, our Father who is in heaven, holy be thy name. And then we'd just take five minutes and just like thank God for different things. And we'd say, your kingdom come, your will be done. And we'd take ten minutes and walk through note cards the first, like, 13 were every, all of our children, our immediate family, this church as a whole, and just a few, like, specific issues that were, like, daily cards. And then we'd spend the rest of the time in just the regular cards of just, like, going through I mean, members of this church, people in our MC, situations, things that would come up on the news, just all, the, you know, just however many times, different churches in the city, pastors that we know, people that we care about, uh, people that we just want to pray for. And I remember talking to my MC one time, saying, like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where I'm at, but I feel like we keep getting up and I wish I could now report to you. Like we get up and pray and like in the midst of the prayer, it unweaves the pain in my chest and my, my heart stops racing and I'm able to walk out and be fine. But that never happens. We pray and there's a part of the portion of the prayer where I pray for my wife. She asks, what can, or I ask, what can I pray for you for? And I pray for that. And she says, what can you pray for me? And every day I said the same. And she'd put one hand on my chest and one hand on the back of my head where I felt the pain most acutely. And she would just pray some of the same things day after day after day. And I'd stop, nothing would be different. I'd go on my day. And I remember just saying, like, I wish I could say it's all different right now, but it's just, it's just not. But I just feel like the only thing we can do is just keep showing up and praying. And then, like, in the height of it all still, we get a call from my sister-in-law, my wife's sister. And she'd been asked out. And that was a really big deal. Because my wife's sister, she's 33. Um, she, we'd been praying for her to find a spouse for the last 10 years. Um, she was a huge, I mean, just, she actually was one of the people that prayed my wife and I, I believe, into the faith. I believe that her prayers were a big reason of why God moved when he did. Um, because she was praying every day for my wife and for myself to become Christians, and we did in that season. And so we were just praying day after day for 10 years that she would um, have a spouse, and, and just person after person just went in her life and out of her life, and, and she was really just faithfully present in her church this whole time. Her church uh, is a other church that just loves playing churches all around Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, her church uh, that, had, you know, she was a in a church that had been sent out by a church, and that was going to send out yet another church 
to Altoona, Iowa, the singles capital of the world. <laughs> and because that's not true, uh, she went with this church plant, and she felt like she was called to do it. She was teaching at a school in Altoona. She's like, I just feel like God's sending me to be an incarnational presence in Altoona, Iowa, which if you feel that, that's the voice of God. That's not, you know, you know? And so she's sitting there, and she said, there's only one, there's this one guy, and she's like, I actually do like this guy. But he's the, but he said, it actually, should be told, it's like, it's not because it's the lack of options. Like, she actually, there was another guy that pursued her, and she said no to that guy. She's just like, even though, uh, she'd been, uh, we've been praying for this a long time. There's just a guy, she's like, this just isn't right. But she said, there's this other guy I do like. And uh, he came with him. He said, but he's the only other single guy here. And actually, he waited, like, he never did anything for two years. And she's like, everyone in the whole church was like, we see it. Uh, we see it for you. We see it for him. We don't know why he doesn't see it. But regardless, he's just not doing anything. And we don't know if he's ever going to do anything. And Laura was kind of like, I mean, my, my sister was kind of like, like, if it's not him, it's pro- like, I'm going to stay at this church, and I'm in Altoona, I'm around all married people, this is probably it. This is probably, like, this is God's calling of singleness in my life. And I'm, I'm learning to start, be, and slowly she was praying to be okay with that. And then we get this call in the midst of it, midst of the height of my depression and anxiety, and she gets asked out by this guy. And they start going on dates. And then a few months later, he proposes. And in four weeks... From yesterday, we'll celebrate the wedding. And it, it was just this really small thing in the midst of depression and anxiety, praying every single day, nothing's changing, nothing's happening, but I just feel like it's all I can do. And God comes along and takes a prayer my wife and I had prayed for 10 years and answers it. As if to say, I see you. I hear your prayer. I know it feels like nothing's changing, and maybe it won't for a while. But I hear you. Remember your second son's name. I haven't gone anywhere. Stand firm in prayer and wait for the, this too will pass. And it will be a stress and a pain and a horrible experience that gives way to the strengthening of your faith. It's like the movie I saw recently on Netflix. You can rarely find interesting movies on there, but uh, like that are, well, no, even the Netflix originals ones are hit and miss. But either way, uh, they do series. That's all they can do now. Um, but either way, I found this movie, not a Netflix movie, but it's on Netflix, called About Time. Um, yeah, I see. Some people take that note. All right, I'll take that note. All right, here we go. Um, either way, um, About Time, and it's a British film, like 2014, and it's this really kind of quirky. It's a, this is actually a better time travel movie I've seen as of late, um, and uh, it's like this quirky British movie where this guy just like learns from his dad, hey, every male heir in our family can travel in time by going into a closet, squeezing their fists, and thinking of a time in the past, and then they're there, and that's it. And he learns that this is true, and that he can travel to any point in his life. And he does what anybody would do if you could do that. He just, like, tries to perfect everything in his life. And so he, like, tries to, like, you know, hit it off with this girl that he likes, and, like, he just keeps going back and trying new opening lines or trying new stuff and going this way and that way, and... 
and she just never liked him. And then he does find a girl who likes him, and he finds a wife. And that's what he says when he first saw him. He's like, can I use this to find a wife? And he finds this wife, and they have a kid, and they go through life. And, and then eventually he talks with his dad when his dad gets diagnosed with the disease. And you actually learn really quick, this is not a romantic comedy. It's not about time travel. This is about a father and a son. And his father, who's been traveling through time all his life, he says, hey, I, I, a little bit ago I told you about the big secret that you could travel through time, but let me tell you the real secret. He said, the real secret is this is how I've learned to use time travel. He said, I lived through an entire day with all its stresses, with all its pains, with all its excitements, with all its wondering how this will turn out. Will I make the tube? Will I get to work on time? Will I get approved? He was a lawyer. Will I win this case? Will I not? And he said, at the end of the day, I go back to the beginning of the day, and I live through the exact same day, changing nothing, except this time the stress is gone. I look up and I appreciate where I'm at. I look into the eyes of my loved ones, and I'm just present, and I'm just there. And my question, though, is that's great, and you see all these moments. He lives through the movie, and he goes through each day again, and you see how that's beautiful. Like, they're running for the, the tube, and this time, instead of stressing out, he's, like, laughing as they run through the station because he knows they make it. He's not sitting there stressed over the, the judge, like, deliberating. He knows they win. But what happens on the days where they don't make it, he doesn't win, and his wife gets diagnosed with cancer? Does he relive through that day? And maybe he does, but the only way he would be able to is if he has faith that even if she dies, even if we lose, even if this blows up, even if everything goes wrong, that I'm holding on to a father who is looking out and providing things for me and is taking me to a freedom that is far fuller far truer than I would ever choose on my own. But ultimately, even if I have to go through pain and hell to get there, that when I get to the other side, I'll look back and ask him that he beg him to never change a thing. That even the pain, it wasn't just the moments that I knew we won the case, it was the moments that I knew we didn't. It wasn't the moments that I knew my wife and I had the intimate moments, it was the moments that I knew she died that day. That God is still with me. He's still faithful. He's still present. He still sees me. He asked me to stand firm today. A way that we can remember this tangibly is through communion. Each week we end our service, we end our gathering as the high point of coming and taking a bread and a cup that represent Jesus' body broken and his blood shed for you. The ultimate nobody saw it coming. No one saw that all through the night. The wind's blowing and no one saw the pathway through death and through sin coming through death. Coming through God dying. He says, I'm doing something you'd never see coming. And it's going to go really dark. But after it's done, you'll beg me that it will never be changed. Because ultimately what I'm doing is the best thing. If you could see what I see, if you know what I know. So trust me. It's the truest, fullest form of freedom is to learn to trust me wherever I'm going, as I lead you, and as we go through the stresses and tests of faith, knowing that it's not your, the amount of your faith, it's the one your faith is in. You just need the size of a mustard seed.
But if it's in the right person, then I'll take you and I'll take you to the end. We'll have stations around the room of communion where you can take the bread if you're a Christian, dip it in the cup. We ask you to come forward after a moment. If you're not a Christian, we ask you just to stay.